your Bibles, you can uh, turn with me, please, to the book of Luke. Well, let's get started today on a part three Christmas series. And today's message is called Simple Savior. Uh, it's great to have Zach and Amanda with us today. They were back with us uh, for Thanksgiving and uh, back with us uh, again today for Christmas. We'll be with us this week. It's always great to be with family. I hope you're having the opportunity to be with your family uh, during this holiday season. But if you can't, you're going to make the most of it and uh, look forward to next year, hopefully. When we look at the details of Christmas, obviously we'll look at what the nativity, what we just uh, witnessed and participated in, a Virgin Mary, a Joseph, no room in the inn, there were shepherds, there were wise men, uh, the, all the other elements that we try to recreate as best we can. But when we look at all of those events, we, we really must boil down the reality of Christmas with a simple question of why. Why Christmas? Why Jesus? Why a Messiah? Why? Why did all of this happen? Why did God become a baby? Why did the, why did the baby come from really an average young woman? Why then? Why during that time? And why there geographically? We have many more questions about Christmas as to why. Why does all of this happen? Why was that God's plan? And the answer to that can be summed up very simply and really with one word, and that is the word sin. Mankind had corrupted his position because of sin by being selfish and deciding, I'm not going to let God make the rules, I'm going to make the rules, and he did his own thing. Adam and Eve sinned. And because of that, we were all born into that nature of sinfulness, that nature that wants to have it our way, that wants to do it the way we want it done and to accomplish what we want to accomplish with God or without God really doesn't matter. That attitude is an attitude of sin. Sin is the most easily verifiable fact in all of humankind or mankind. We look at the extreme examples of uh, December 7th, a uh, uh, not a holiday, but Memorial Day that we just celebrated, Pearl Harbor Day, in which this country was bombed. We look at September 11th, another day that we have memorialized, the day when this country was bombed. There are many, multitude of examples of the reality of people's sin, their selfishness, their aggression, we're going to do it our way. We're going to conquer. We're going to overcome. We don't want you to live the way you're living. We don't, we're going to overcome. I'm not here to proclaim that America's the lily white, never done anything wrong country. Certainly not. But sin is a reality in every continent, every country, every state, every region, every city, every village, every family, every person. The Bible tells us in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It is a verifiable fact of the depravity of man. Rome, uh, Matthew 15.19 says, Jesus said, out of the heart of a man proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, thefts, all of that. Out of the person's heart, Jeremiah 17.9 said, the heart is deceitful above all things. You don't have to teach a person to do wrong. It comes naturally. That's the reason for Christmas, is because of the sin of mankind. 
Well, you're in Luke chapter number four, and we're going to read verses 14 through 21. And here we find Jesus is now an adult, and he is beginning the process of about a three-year, what we might call ministry or life, in which he's going to teach, he's going to preach, he's going to perform miracles, he's going to give explanations for what he's doing, he's going to rebuke, he's going to cast out demons, he's going to perform miracles, he's going to raise the dead. All of these things are a reality of what he's going to do, but he starts off strategically, even in his own town. And he starts off strategically by referencing and reading a verse from the Old Testament about him, a prophecy from the book of Isaiah. Let's read Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 21. It says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. And he was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. On the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. It's at this point that we begin to see the grace of God really displayed on all of mankind, rich or poor, Religious, irreligious, male, female, God begins to show his grace on people in a brand new way. And this prophecy in Isaiah is fulfilled in Christ. And what he came to do is the reason why there is a Christmas. Three things I just want to share with you real quickly and briefly. Number one is Jesus came to free us from our poverty. Verse number 18, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. We think of poverty sometimes as kind of mono. It's just kind of those who don't have money, and yet there's a lot of poverty that has nothing to do with money whatsoever. Jesus did not come to make us middle-class Americans. He came to bring us out of poverty. There are a lot of poverties of the soul that are not as easy to detect even when you look at someone's bank account and investment. In Luke, chapter, uh, in Luke the, Jesus talked about two men who went up to the temple to pray. He said one was a really religious guy, probably secure financially, but one was a beggar. He said they both went up to the temple to pray, and the real religious guy, probably financially secure, he said, oh, God, I just thank you so much that I'm so good. I'm paraphrasing. He said, I just thank you and I'm so good. I do these things for you and I do these things for you and I do these things for you and this is what I do for you and I'm not like that beggar. Then the beggar prayed. And the Bible says in this story, he wouldn't even lift his head. He said, God, I, I, I'm just, please forgive me. And Jesus said, this guy, the religious guy, 
went away from the temple unchanged. But this poor beggar went away justified before God because he realized, I'm poor. And he realized it had nothing to do with his bank account. There's poverties of the soul that are actually more important than poverties of finance. In the book of Revelation, we see the, the, the word of Christ that goes to these seven churches. And to one of them, there is a rebuke from the Lord. And he says, you guys say that you're rich and you don't have any need of anything. Everything you touch turns to gold. Paraphrasing again. He says, this is what you guys say. But Jesus says, but this is what I say about you. This is how I describe you. He said, you're poor, blind, miserable, and naked. See, there's a poverty that Christ comes to redeem us from and to pull us out of. There's a poverty of anger. There's a poverty of mistrust. There's a poverty of depression. There's a poverty of selfishness. There's a poverty of disruption. There's a poverty called dysfunction. And God says, I've come to liberate you from that poverty. I've come to bring you out of that poverty. I have a life of richness and wholeness for you, and that's the reason for Christmas. Jesus came to liberate us from being poor, poor in spirit, poor in the things that really, really matter. He says, I've come to liberate you from that. And I believe I'm talking to a group of people today that could testify and say, hey, I, I experienced some of those poverties and probably some that you didn't mention. And God has liberated me from that poverty and is still taking me far away from that type of poverty. The poverty of unforgiveness. The poverty of bitterness. There's a, there was something that happened this week during the nativity. I can't share it with you because it's too personal. It's not personal with me. It's personal with another person here at the church. An absolute deliverance, an absolute show and display of God's grace. One day, you're going to hear the testimony. I hate to tease you like that. One day, you're going to hear that testimony. It was just absolutely remarkable where God has taken someone and said, I'm going I'm to bring you over here. You're not going to live in bitterness. You're not going to live in unforgiveness. You're going to live in joy and peace and generosity. You'll hear it one day. I just know you will. I know it's going to come full circle. Tremendous step that, it, that took place. He's come to deliver us. Luke 12, 15 says, A man's life does not consist in the things he possesses. Matthew 6, he said, store up treasure in heaven where nothing can break in and steal and corrupt and destroy. In the Christmas carol, O Holy Night, not Silent Night. It's an inside joke. There's another line in that song that I really like. It says, long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. That's powerful. Jesus came so that you would know how important your soul is, how important you are, how valuable your soul is. That's why Christmas, that's why Christ came. 
so that every one of us would have a marker, would have a moment where we'd say, wow, God would do that for me? And the answer is yes. He's come to deliver us from poverty. Thinking that we're not worthy is poverty. Knowing that we are worthy because God says we're worthy, now that's good. That's a liberation from poverty. The second thing that we find is that Jesus came to free us from our prisons. Again, verse number 18. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners to set the oppressed free. Some prisons are not as obvious as others. I, I love the fact that I was in prison once. It was in the Atlanta Penitentiary. It's just a short time, about an hour and a half. I was preaching. But potential boyfriends to my daughters don't need to know that. They just need to know I was in prison and I'm not afraid to go back. I encourage all fathers of children, daughters, to go to prison for an hour. But there's the prison of worry, the prison of fear, the prison of guilt, self-righteousness, and pride. John 8, 31, Jesus said, if you hold to my teachings, you are truly my disciples, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. God has come to set you free. Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. That's what Galatians tells us. He's come to set us free, to bring us out of those prisons that have nothing to do with bars that can be seen, but they have to do with bars that can't be seen but are just as strong and possibly even stronger than the bars that can be seen. It is those, those strongholds in people's lives that cause them to live in a prison and God said, I've come to bring you out of that prison. The fear that torments, the fear that paralyzes, the fear that causes a, a stagnation in our lives. He said, I've come to deliver you out of that fear. I've come to bring you out because that fear is of the devil. That fear is of the enemy because it paralyzes us. Aren't you glad the word says perfect love cast out fear? It just pushes it right out of us. And that's where we just need to be flooded with God's love. He's eternal, powerful love. Say, God, I want you to fill me with more of your love. I need love to just fill me so much that you're pushing out all of that fear, all of that anger, all of that disruption out of my life. Lord, fill me with love. And that love is what liberates us from the prison, and the prisons that we can see and what we can't see. Thirdly, we find that Jesus came to free us from our payment, verse number 19. He says, I've come to bring you out. I've come to pay the price for your sin. See, sin always causes a price to be paid. And though we could not pay the price, Jesus could and did because he had never sinned. He had never done anything wrong. And so when he went to the cross, the full payment was made. We know God is love and he is quick to forgive. And he's quick in displaying his mercy. But we seem to forget 
that mercy is obsolete without justice. Without justice, there's no need for mercy. And God is a merciful God. He's also a just God. He is justified in everything that he does. And he is justified in saying, this is the standard that you're to live by. I command you to live by this standard. He's justified in doing that. And he's also justified in punishing us when we don't. But he displays his mercy to us And that to say, I know that you're weak and I know that you're sinful and you cannot live up to this standard. Therefore, I'm going to provide a payment for your sin. And that's Jesus Christ. But we cannot deny that God is a just God and he demands justice. So the punishment that I was supposed to pay, Jesus paid. And the punishment that the world was supposed to pay, Jesus paid. Because he died for the sins of the entire world. It does not do away with God's justice. It fulfills his justice. Jesus paid the debt that was impossible for us to pay. If there is no standard and there is no accountability to that standard, then there's no need for mercy. God holds you accountable for your actions, but he placed the punishment on Jesus Christ. And therefore now... We do not do good things so that we can be saved. We don't do good things so that we can go to heaven. We do good things because we're saved. We do good things because we know we have the assurance of God's love. God, our heavenly Father, loves us. How do we know that? The word says that while we were sinners, Christ demonstrated his love for us and that he sent Jesus to the cross. We have a display of God's love. What is it that every young woman wants her new boyfriend to do? Display his love. Display. You can talk about it all day long. But how how about roses? How about a sacrifice? How about not doing something you wanted to do so we could do something I wanted to do? Am I talking to the right people? Y'all looking like... Some of you are thinking, that was a long time ago. (laughs) God demonstrated his love for us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Man, that's powerful. He said, I've come to free you from your payment. The payment, there was no way that you could pay. The story is told of a small town in England in which there was a doctor, Dr. Blund. He was the town doctor. He was also the town drunk. That's a weird combination, isn't it? And the only person who really believed in Dr. Blund was his wife. Old people came to him for help because... He was the only doctor in town, and he knew more about medicine than anybody else. So they would go to him for help. They were physically sick. Nobody could out-drink Dr. Blund. Nobody. He drank more than anyone. Stayed drunk most of the time. His wife believed in him. Whenever she would introduce him to somebody who was visiting the, the little town or visiting 
She would always just proclaim how wonderful of a doctor he is, and he helped so many people, and he's cured so many people. He knows so much about medicine. He knows about illness. He knows about the human body. She just sang his praises, so to speak, and it was irritating to Dr. Blund because he recognized who he really was. Everyone knew who he really was. Well, one day, the priest was talking to another man in the town, talking on the street corner, and Mrs. Blunt came running up the street and saying, oh, doctor, doctor, or I'm sorry, saying to the priest, will you please come? The doctor needs you. The doctor needs you. And the priest was like, I, I'm not sure what this is going to be all about. This guy's lived a horrible life. What, what, does, he, what does he want? Because I've talked to him. I've tried to talk to him, and he wouldn't have anything to do with it. Well, come to find out the doctor isn't dying. He's on his deathbed, and he's calling for the priest. So the priest comes, and he begins to tell him about repentance, and the priest talks to him about doing good things, and the priest talks to him about you know, what he should have done and what, he could, you know, what the good things that he can do if he recovers. And the doctor laying there says, but there's something else. And the priest is like, what, what, what are you talking about? He says, there, I think there's some verse in the Bible that talks about being born again. And it threw the priest off. And the priest was trying to remember, okay, does the Bible say they're born again? He wasn't sure. And he fumbled and fumbled around. And, and the doctor asked the priest, he said, do you know what I'm talking about? What does that mean to be born again? And again, the priest is fumbling for words. He's trying to just make something up. And the doctor looks up at the priest and says, are you faking it? Have you ever had the experience of being born again? And again, the priest is just fumbling with his words and finally leaves. A day or two later, a pastor was called to Dr. Blunt's house, and he asked him the question, and the pastor explained to him what it meant to be born again, and Dr. Blunt was born again. He was saved. Now, he only lived a, a, a few more weeks, but there was a transition in his life. There was a glee in his eye. There was a, an attitude change. There was a heart change. There had been an experience of being born again. A, a, he experienced a sudden passlessness. His past was gone. All of the sin of drinking was now under the blood of Jesus Christ, and he had experienced a new birth. It was a shame that it was at the end of his life, but he experienced that new birth. And the priest, who didn't have an answer, wrestled with that issue and went to the Word and, and, and began to study and look at it and just began to say, God, is this what is, what is going on? What is happening? And he himself had the experience of being converted, being born again, and his life was changed. You see, when you come to God and say, God, I realize now the reason for Christmas, the reason for Jesus is to save me from me. And you come to him and say, God, please save me. The immediate consequence of that is a born-again experience in which there's a transition from death to life, from blindness to sight, not being able to hear or understand God to then being able to hear and understand. It is a complete transition. It's like a brand-new baby. They, they have no past to deal with. They're just brand-new. 
And that's how Jesus described this conversion process. It's like, it's, it's like a brand new baby. You have no past sin to deal with. You start brand new. My question to you is, have you been born again? Have you been born again? Have you gone through that transition? You know, if you ask somebody, have you been born again? And they, and they say, what do you mean? That's your answer, right? <laughs> you don't have to tell somebody, hey, you've been born again. Oh, I have? You don't have to tell a baby, you know, yeah, you were in the womb, now you're out of the womb. Really? They know. They might not understand everything, but they know, I just went through a change. And that's what it means to be born again. Are you born again? The most important question you can ask or ever answer. 